So typically on a Sunday, following a sermon, you'll find me out by the front doors uh, greeting anyone uh, on their way out the building. Uh, I like to meet meet visitors, meet anyone new. Uh, This Sunday will not be the case. Uh, We have a lot of sickness in our house, and uh, most of us are home right now. So uh, I'm going to scoot out right after church and and go be with my family and help my wife. My wife is actually sick in bed right now with a fever, Uh, so pray for her. yeah, but if you're visiting, we're so happy to have you, and, and I'd like to meet you another time. So come back so that I can meet you by the front doors. Uh, but today, at least fill out a visitor card, one of those Connect cards, and go on over to the Connection Center, and we have a, a gift there we like to give visitors. So fill that on out and, and head over there, and we'd love to get to know you more and see how we can encourage you. Okay, let's get to the Word, shall we? Uh, for many, when asked about what the holiday season means to them, they respond that it's, it's about time with family. It's about time with loved ones. It's about being with those uh, we care about. That's, that's what the season's about. Now the, the Pharisee in our hearts might jump all over this and say, no, Jesus is the reason for the season. Keep Christ in Christmas. Haven't you seen my bumper stickers? Right? We want to remind people of this, right? Family is a nice side benefit, but that's not what Christmas is about, we, like, we might say, right? But perhaps, perhaps both responses are correct. Sure, being with family might sound a bit vague, like a Hallmark Christmas special, but I think that the answer, that answer is on to something. It's tapping into something that is true about Christmas. Your, your family may be a wonderful, loving family, but your family may also be a source of deep pain. And this shows us that the, the best of families are but a shadow of an even greater family. And the worst of families reveals our longing for true family. In fact, the love of our Heavenly Father is at the very heart of Christmas, and the very heart of the gospel. Our text this morning is, is uh, at first glance, it might not seem like a, a traditional Christmas passage, but I, I beg to differ. The Father's love in this passage is on full display, and this text is going to show us the true wonder of the Father's love at Christmas. So let's go there now. Please turn with me to Galatians chapter 3, verse 26. I'm going to read through to chapter 4, verse 7. If you need to use a pew Bible, you'll find today's text on page 1156. Once you're there, I invite you to stand with me if you're able, out of reverence and respect for the Word of God, and follow along with me as I read. For in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, Then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything. 
but he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. This is God's word. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, May your spirit open our eyes now to behold your love on display through the work of your Son. And may we, like Job, savor and treasure the words of your mouth more than the richest of foods. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. So a little context. The Apostle Paul is writing here to a church in Galatia that has been duped. They've been duped by false teachers who promote a form of legalism that requires adherence to aspects of the Jewish law to truly be in God's good graces, to be in God's good favor. And Paul calls them out sharply at the very beginning of this letter. Chapter 1, verse 6 through 9, he writes to them, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who would trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, Let him be accursed. A false gospel is nothing new today. There's a part of us that likes rules and formulas, so legalism is something we all have to watch out for. Maybe it's the the predictability or the illusion of control, but it's nothing more than dead religion. That's Paul's point to the people in Galatia is that this gospel they've accepted is is a form of legalism that's dead religion. Paul seeks to snap these believers out of this and we see a part of his strategy in our text today. He's going to remind them. He's going to remind them of who they are and how they got there. He's going to remind them. And I want to show you three Uh, wonders of the Father's love that Paul reminds these Galatian believers of in order to snap them out of it and to bring them back to their senses uh, and to fall in love with with the Father all over again. And so three wonders of the Father's love. The first one is this, his redeeming love was the first thing we see. First notice, Paul's illustration at the beginning of chapter 4, Paul says, the law is our guardian until we come of age. We're held captive by it. Now, I don't think he has only the the Jewish Mosaic law in mind here. The the Galatians were not Jewish converts to Christianity. They were pagans. 
And so in, in verse 3, Paul says that they were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. I think Paul is simply trying to say here that Jew or not, all mankind are spiritual slaves before coming to Christ. There is a law written on all of our hearts, standards that we all seek to live up to. This law is our master and we are slaves to it. We're obligated to keep it, but we can't. And that's the burden. We can't even live up to our own standards that we set for ourselves, let alone God's law. This is crushing. This is uh, an, an anxious uh, toil and burden. We're always trying to, to prove ourselves, never knowing if it's enough, and always striving to keep or to maintain whatever level of status that we've, we think we've attained, fearful that we may fall from whatever point of that pedestal that we've climbed to. Well, this is just a snapshot of the world that we live in apart from Christ. And it's into this world that verse 4 says, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law to redeem those who were born under the law. The wonder of the father's love is, is that he redeems us from slavery to the law. He, he removes that burden from us. He removes our, our sin from us. The word redeem means to release a slave from his owner by paying the full price for that slave. This is exactly what Christ does for us. He completely fulfills all the law's demands on us. And because he does this, he alone is able to set us free. And here's how. Look closely at verse 4. Here's how he's able to set us free. First, notice that, that God's son was born of woman. It's important because in order for Jesus to redeem us, he had to be like us in every way. He had to be completely human. Only another human could stand in our place and redeem us. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 17 reminds us of this very truth. It says, Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. But not just any human could redeem us. That human would have to be perfect because that is the full price of redemption. Only perfection will count. Nothing short of that can purchase our freedom. And this is why verse 4 also says that Jesus was born under the law. He subjected himself to the demands of this master. Jesus was born into a Jewish home. He attended the synagogue. He grew up under the law's demands but how could, how could he satisfy them when no one else has? What makes Jesus any different from us? How is it that he would succeed when all, all, uh, everyone else has failed? And the reason is because Jesus would, the reason he would succeed is because where, where no one else in history has, the reason he would succeed is because of this third thing that Paul tells us in verse 4 God sent forth his. Son, Jesus isn't just 100% like us. 
made a man in every way, but he's also the eternally divine Son of God, fully God, fully man. This was the only way. And this means that not only does he qualify by being a human being to represent us, he's also capable of satisfying the law for us because he is God himself and he is perfect. And so the first wonder of the Father's love is that he sent his Son, fully human, fully divine, fully righteous, to lay down his life on the cross, paying the price for our redemption. And this leads to the next wonder of God, his adopting love. If we stop at redemption, that's only half the gospel. The Father redeemed us from slavery to the law. This is a great thing. We should celebrate this. This is a wonder of God's love, but it doesn't stop there. The other half of the gospel is that he adopts us as sons. We're given a new identity is what this means. Christianity isn't just standing before the judge and having your debt paid and being set free. Christianity goes a step further That judge steps down from his bench and comes over to you and invites you to come home with him and to be his adopted son, to live with him. This is the glorious goal of the gospel. It doesn't stop at redemption. It goes even further to adoption. In answer to the question, what is a Christian, theologian J.I. Packer responded, the richest answer I know is that a Christian is one who has God as their father. Packer continues, to be right with God the judge is a great thing, but to be loved and cared for by God the father is greater. Chapter 3, 27 says that all who have been baptized into Christ have put on Christ. We are united to Christ the son in baptism or, or conversion And we have to put on Christ as our new identity. He doesn't just wipe our slate clean. And now it's it's up to us to write our own good deeds on that clean slate. The gospel is not a do-over. The gospel is not a mulligan. One of the most profound realities of the gospel is that being adopted and given sonship God now treats us as if we have done everything that Jesus has done. Isn't that incredible? God treats us as if we have done everything that Jesus has done. His perfect record is ours. There's no need to write anything on that slate because Jesus wrote it all on there for you. But we've been given more than just a new identity. Our new identity comes with a glorious inheritance. The Father not only takes us off death row, but also hangs the Congressional Medal of Honor around our necks. In chapter 4, verse 7, Paul says that if you are a son, then you are an heir. Some translations have tried to make this more gender-inclusive and to say something like, if you are children, then... or. Uh, or if you are sons and daughters. But this, I think, is a mistake 
because it misses uh, something crucial here culturally. Paul is not being chauvinistic here. He's actually being very uh, countercultural in what he's saying. In Paul's day, sonship was a legal term. A father's inheritance couldn't be passed down to a daughter. It was only passed down through the firstborn son. But notice what Paul says in verse 28 in chapter 3 about who it is that receives sonship. He says, there is neither Jew nor Greek nor slave nor free. There is no male or female, for you are all one in Christ. Notice here that sonship and the inheritance are given to male and female. The New Testament applies the the gender-specific metaphors that it uses evenly to both men and women. An opposite example of this is when the New Testament says that God's people are the bride of Christ. Men have a hard time relating to that sometimes. And this metaphor also applies to both male and female. So sonship is really important here. I think we need to maintain that in our translations. One final thing that adoption as sons means is that you are part of God's family. And this family has radical social implications. As we saw in, in chapter 328 just a moment ago, all are one in Christ. The, the ethnicity, uh, the culture, the social class, genders are all secondary in God's family. Because before you are anything else, you are a son. You are a son. And this is radical because all these walls that the world uses to define and to divide us all come down in God's family. And so in the church, we have, we have a bond with people that the world don't understand because in the world, you gravitate naturally to those who are like you. But in the church, God is building a family that is male and female, rich and poor, old and young, and those we have nothing in common with in the world have become our brothers and our sisters, family of God. If we are redeemed, adopted, relating to God intimately as a father instead of a judge, we're given a new identity and a glorious inheritance and a diverse, loving family. These are all astonishing wonders of God's love, but there's one more. His love transforms us. His love transforms us. There are a few ways that God's adoptive love transforms us. First, it's helpful to understand something about the nature of adoption. When you understand this, it's transformative. Now, my wife and I, we don't have adopted children, so I can't speak from experience here. Some of you do. So I'm going to lean on the experience of others uh, for this point and a few others. Uh, David Platt, he's a pastor, tells of a conversation that he had with his adopted son. And he says this, The other day I was playing with my son, whom we adopted from Kazakhstan. His favorite question now is why. When I told him I loved him, he asked why. I said, because you're my son. And of course he asked, why? How do you answer that? Out of all the children in the world, why is he my son? 
I started thinking about all the factors that had to come together from the timing to the qualifications to the ups and downs to the days my wife and I wondered if we could do this. I felt the tears well up, though my son didn't even know what was going on, probably sorry that he had asked why. I looked at this precious little boy and I said, because I wanted you, buddy. We came to get you. That's why you're my son. And in a much greater way, you and I have a God who says, I love you. And when we ask why God, he answers, because you're my son. But why? Because I wanted you, he says. And I came to get you. Paul expresses this reality in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 to 6. Says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has blessed us in in the beloved. The Father has set his love on us before the beginning of time and determined to adopt us as his sons according to the purpose of his will. Here we see great intentionality. In verse 4, Paul says that uh, when the fullness of time had come, God sent his son. This was a plan. God did not decide to adopt you on a whim. He didn't wake up one day thinking, you know what, I think I'll adopt some some children. No, he put a plan in motion to make you his own. It was intentional. Now there's one thing uh, that I know you should never say to an adoptive parent. It's this. When you learn that uh, when you learn that a parent has uh, adopted children, you may say something like this: oh, "That's so nice. Do you have other children of your own too?" To an adoptive parent, they're 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 just uh, they're just as much theirs as any other kid, naturally born or otherwise. And so that's a little offensive if you didn't know to an adoptive parent. But let's just sink in a bit. Think about our, our adoption as sons of God. We are his. And if we are his, we will always be his. Even when we confess our sin to him, it's not because we've been disowned and want to get back into the family. We don't disown our kids when they sin against us, right? But our sin damages relationships. And so confession is part of making that relationship right again. But we aren't disowned. This morning, uh, the Lord's Prayer was read. And there's that line in there, forgive us our sins. And when we uh, have a practice of confession, which is what we've been kind of building into our service uh, recently, is having a a call to confession, a, a prayer of confession, it's getting into a rhythm of, 
of, of not having to have the, the, the redemptive blood of Jesus applied to us all over again, but getting into a rhythm of, uh, of coming to our Father uh, to, to make that relationship right, uh, not having to be redeemed all over again, but making that relationship right. And we see this in, in Jesus' parable in Luke 15 of the prodigal son. The son repents and the father, just overwhelmed with joy, runs to his son and welcomes him back with open arms. That's a picture of, of how repentance works in the life of a believer, continual repentance. Now there's one difference between God and his adoption of us and earthly adoption. Earthly adoption can sometimes be over-glamorized as we think about sweet, precious children all over the world longing to be adopted by a family. But when we look at Ephesians 2, we learn that there is nothing about us that should make us desirable to our Heavenly Father. Russell Moore, another adoptive parent, makes this point in his book, Adopted for Life. He says this, Imagine for a moment that you're adopting a child. As you meet with the social worker in the last stage of the process, you're told that this 12-year-old has been in and out of psychotherapy since he was three. He persists in burning things and attempting repeatedly to skin animals alive. He acts out sexually, the social worker says, although she doesn't fill you in on what that means. She continues with a little family history. This boy's father, grandfather, great-grandfather, and great-great-grandfather all had histories of violence, ranging from spousal abuse to serial murder. Each of them ended their own lives. Think for a minute. Would you want this child? Moore goes on to clarify his point. Before God the Father, that 12-year-old boy is you. He's me. This is the gospel. That though there was nothing desirable about us, God wants you. He determined to redeem you, sending his son to die and rise again to make you his own. Think about that. I mean, even if you think that was over, uh, over-exaggerated or a little bit much, it's not. The life of the Son of God was required to pay for your sin so that he could have you as his own. Understanding that God loves you that intensely will transform everything about you. It transforms the way you relate to others because you know deep down that there's nothing that you did to merit God's favor. It makes the opinion of others that they have of you a lot less significant. Because you're loved and accepted by the Father, flaws and all. It makes you more patient with others because you know that you need God's grace just as much if that other person does, especially that person who who drives you crazy. It makes you more gracious to those in church because you understand that God chose to adopt that person just the same as you. And if God loves them, so should you. Lastly, back to our our text to see one more way that God's love transforms us. Verse 7 says that because you are sons, 
God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts crying, Abba, Father. This is not so much a form of baby talk like calling God our our daddy. It's a title for God that implies intimacy. In the Old Testament, when God appeared to people enslaved to the law, they related to God fundamentally as a judge and with fear and with trembling. In Exodus 19, we get a picture of this. God's presence is associated with things like thunder and lightning and clouds and thick darkness. Mount Sinai was enveloped in smoke and the earth shook. And it says the people in the camp trembled. With this in mind, listen to Paul's words in Romans eight fifteen to 16. He says this, For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. The Spirit is given to us that transforms the way we relate to God. Notice that God sent two people to us in our text. The first is that he sent his son who objectively redeems and adopts us. And the second person is his Holy Spirit who subjectively enables us to experience our adoption. It's the, it's the Spirit's work in our hearts that gives us assurance to know that we are sons of God and that God is our Father. And Abba is, like I said, a personal title for a father only used by a son. And it's the cry of a child's heart for his dad with confidence when that child is scared. Think about how the context in which Jesus uses it. Jesus addresses the Father with this title in one of the darkest moments of his life, praying, sweating drops of blood in the garden on the night of his arrest. He says, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. The love of the Father transforms us from trembling to intimacy. What Wondrous love is that. Finally, in closing, I ask you this. Are you his son? Is God your father? The heart of Christmas is adoption. Christmas is about family after all. The father wants you. He sent his son to come for you. And it's by faith alone that you become sons of God. Stop living as a slave. Trust Jesus to redeem you by his death and his resurrection. Know God as more than a judge. Know him as your heavenly Father and be transformed by the gift of the Spirit that replaces trembling with intimacy. Let's pray.